morning. Uh, we're going to jump into the Word, man. Grab your Bible. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, we're going to get into this. Love this chapter. There's way more here than we'll be able to unpack by any means right now, but uh, there's some good stuff we're going to grab hold of. So uh, jump over there to Isaiah 6. Again, this is me uh, pulling the Word apart, us kind of um, looking at it together now, and then tonight we'll talk about it. So if you want to come join us, we'd love for you to do that. We're in Tempe, Arizona. Hit us up online, social media, or email, or website, however you want to do it. Hit us up. We'll tell you how to find us, and we'd love for you to come be part of what we're doing. Uh, and put put in your thoughts on this. We want to hear from you. So uh, hit us up. We'll tell you where to find us, and you can certainly come hang out. Uh, we've been working through a series on Is God Among Us? Not one of us, but among us. And uh, the theme, I've shared it every time, I'll share it again, is Revelation 21, verse 3, that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He uh, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So today, we're looking at Is God Among Us When We Aren't aware is God among us when we aren't aware what if when we pray just think about this minute what if when we pray we found ourselves at the literal throne of God like literally there what image do you have what do you think that would look like what do you think it would look like to be in that position what if God allowed us actual visual access behind the veil so to speak into the spiritual world when we prayed how might that change your prayer life? Just saying. Uh, you're asking for that new car. God, I really need a new car. really need help with this. really need that. And then suddenly there's angels around shouting, holy, 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 so loud and booming to the point that the ground that you're on is shaking. And then you raise your head and you look up and you see the foot of a throne. I mean, you're getting the picture here. Suddenly the car might be a bit more irrelevant. You know what I mean? Not hating, just saying. Today we're looking at this moment that's like that with Isaiah minus the car. <laughs> so turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, I'll read this real quick, and then we'll jump in. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he'd take him with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this text. Thank you so much for your word. It is so awesome. Pray today as we dig into it that you're glorified by it, not me. It is your word always, not my word. Thank you for letting me have the privilege of reading it and sharing it with others. And I would say the same for all those who would responsibly share your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, you know the phrase, you know, can't see the forest for the trees. It's one of those odd statements, you know. 
But it's kind of getting at the point is sometimes we're so focused on what we're looking for that we miss what we're actually looking at. You know what I'm saying? And I remember when I was in high school, uh, there was this new kind of digital art that was out. It got really popular. Um, I actually had several of them, but they are called stereograms. I'll show you. Here's a picture of what they look like. Um, Odd-shaped things they have. Um, if you stare at them long enough, they have this 3D image in them. Um, you can Google it. I know that's hard to see. That's a bunch of them. But you can Google it, and you can see for yourself what they look like. And um, the more you stare at them, though, if you haven't seen them before, they have this 3D image. you got to kind of gaze in them. And I'll never forget the first one I saw. It was outside of a store in the mall, and it was framed, and there were these people standing there staring at it. And walked up, and I looked at this thing, and I was like, um, what are, what are they looking at? And somebody said it was the Statue of Liberty. And I was like, what? And so I continue to look at this thing, and I'm not seeing anything. But then the longer I'm staring, it suddenly starts to move. It's like this weird effect where it suddenly starts to move, and, and, and all of a sudden it has depth to it. And suddenly, boom, there it is, the Statue of Liberty right there. It looks like I can reach in and grab it right out of the picture. Blew my mind. And since then, I know how to see them now. I know how you do it, but it still takes a little bit of work. Uh, sometimes you have to kind of focus a few minutes and try to try to tune in, so to speak, so where you can see it. Excuse me. And, and sometimes we're so focused on prayer itself, on, on our concerns, on our desires, on our responsibility to pray, that we fail to recognize that we are literally in the presence of God when we pray. Literally in the very presence of the real creator and king of the universe. But if we see him, if we take the time to, to tune in and to recognize and see him, it changes the way we approach prayer in the future. I can promise you that. Uh, and so today... I, I think it would change our lives significantly if we realize that the closeness that we have uh, or the closeness that we have with God when we pray, I think it would change the way we live our lives. If we recognize his position as king, our sinfulness and his desire based on Christ's sacrifice to use us in his plan, in his kingdom, that all begins with how we approach his presence among us. So, Look at the, this is the way we'll outline it. Um, you realize, you recognize and repent, and you respond. Realize that God is present. Recognize and repent of sin, and then respond. Hey, send me. So we're going to jump in here quick, but the background really fast. You had Samuel was where we left off. Samuel grows up. He uh, uh, is led by God to appoint Saul as king. You can go read all this story in your own time. I don't have time. From Saul then, they go to David. David is then king. And then from David's son Solomon, which is in the 900s B.C., from David's son Solomon forward, Israel becomes a divided kingdom, divided between north and south, all right? The tribes split out. I'm not going to, you can read all this your own time. But at the time of Isaiah, which is about the 700s B.C., the land of Israel is splintered and it's sinful, and he's in the south with Judah, and the other tribes are in the north. And so you have Hosea, you have Micah, you have Amos, you have Jonah. These guys are all 
on the earth around the same time there with Isaiah. You also just around the world, things that were going on during Isaiah's lifetime is when the Olympics began. Uh, it's when um, Rome was established as a nation, so just some kind of time period there. And Isaiah lived alongside of four different kings in Judah, the south. There were four kings that uh, he was influential with, but Uzziah was one of the biggest and longest. Um, and at U- Uzziah's tenth, he is the tenth king, excuse me, in this chain of kings now. And this part where we're at in chapter six zooms in on the moment that he dies or after his death sometime. But we know that around the time that he died also, Assyria is becoming the world power. And Assyria is vicious. And they are destroying and killing people in violent ways to to take over the world, in essence. But they have their mind set on Israel. And before Isaiah dies, they would conquer the northern kingdom uh, and scatter them everywhere. So that's kind of the, the the feel of the world at the time. So let's jump in here to, first of all, Isaiah 6, verse 1. Realize that God is present. In verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 5 notes that I saw the king seated on the throne, referring to God. Pretty cool. The year that the king died, I saw the king on the throne. If you get nothing else out of that, that's good. That's good. Good theology right there. There is one king. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train or the hem of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the the seraphim. Watch this. Each had six wings, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So it says they're standing, but they're also flying. So the idea of standing in flight. They're not moving from where they are, but they are not on the ground. And one called to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts or the God of armies, angel armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in the context of Assyria and all these times, know that. Verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. It's the the seraphim that are talking here. All right, they're the ones calling. And the house was filled with smoke. So where do I get the idea that Isaiah is praying? And I believe Isaiah is in the temple. So where am I getting that idea from? Well, it can be argued. There's a lot of opinions about exactly where and when all this is happening. But I believe this is happening in the temple and he's praying. And I believe that based on a few contextual clues here. Um, for instance, it says temple. It's directly mentioned. The word temple is there. Now, that could be the heavenly temple, uh, not the earthly one. But I think it's both. I think it is symbolic of both of them. It mentions foundations and thresholds. Those are physical parts of the temple. So I think there's a, a, a both going on here. It mentions the altar. And that's a reference to the altar of sacrifice where they burn sacrifices outside of the temple. It mentions the house is filled with smoke. That would come from the altar of incense. All right. Uh, it mentions tongs and... Coal, those were carried from the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice, they would take the tongs and carry a coal and bring it into the altar of incense to light them. So I get this. Let me read this, and I'm going to show you a picture. But in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 11, is where we get kind of the picture of that. It says, "Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself." This would be on the altar of sacrifice, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and then he shall take a censer 
full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring inside the veil. So from outside he brings this coal and incense together and then he puts them, verse 13, put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat which was on the uh, ark that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So part of the purpose of the smoke was to veil the overwhelming presence of God. Let me show you some pictures really quick of the temple really fast. Here is um, one where you can see the outside, that big stone altar right there. That would be the altar where they would have coals from the fire that burn the sacrifices. And then the priest would carry them inside and he would come in, he'd come up before the uh, big curtain there that blocked the, the uh, Holy of Holies from um, the holy place where he's standing. And you can see number five there. There was a little, uh, I'll zoom in where you can see it a little better. There is an altar of incense right there. So he would carry that censer or that, uh, excuse me, in a censer, he would carry that coal into that little spot and he would put it on there, dump incense in there, and the, the smoke would fill up the entire building, both sides in there, uh, would fill with smoke. So that's kind of what's happening. And there's imagery here between a literal temple and a physical temple that all are spiritual temple and a physical temple. That's always happening in scripture. But there's other places too. Psalm 22 verse 3 says, you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. So just as the smoke would fill the temple, uh, it symbolized him being enthroned on those praises, those praises, those prayers. That's what was in the smoke, so to speak. Um, basically, the idea was that smoke rose up to heaven. It carried the prayers up to God. Second Samuel 6, verse 2, it says, David arose and went with all the people who were with him from uh, Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, watch this, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim, the idea that the ark was his throne. So in this temple, again, we talked about you have the ark back there that is where he's enthroned, all right? And then the whole place would fill with smoke, which would symbolize the prayers of the people, and it would veil that glory a bit so that the priest didn't die when he came in by being exposed to the presence of God. The prophet Amos, who was at the same time period as this is going on with Isaiah, he wrote in Isaiah 9, 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, strike the capitals until the threshold shakes. So I'm not going all into that, just to point out that he had a similar experience where I believe it is both physical and spiritual where he's seeing them come together. So I think Isaiah is at the altar of incense. I think he is praying as there are Prayers rising in the smoke. And I think the smoke is getting more and more intense all of a sudden. And it starts to get almost to a blanket where it's a bit of a struggle to see. And then suddenly the Holy of Holies opens to where the ark is. But it's not the ark that he sees sitting there where he's enthroned. It is the throne itself sitting there. He sees the actual throne of God there. And guess what? He's on it. And there's seraphim above him. That's wild. Seraphim, it means seraphim. We put an I-M on a Hebrew word. It, it makes it plural. So that means there's just multiple of these. We know there's at least a couple. 
So fiery ones is what it means. And again, it's their voice, their praise that's shaking the building. Their praise that's shaking the building. And this is the only mention of these angels here by name. In all of the Bible, it's only here in Isaiah where these guys are mentioned by name. And only right here where they, now they're referred to again maybe, but this is the only time they're actually called where you see seraphim as these particular individuals. Um, Isaiah also would refer to cherubim as well as a different angel, but these guys are unique. Uh, but the broader point here is not to get caught up on the angels. Let's not get caught up on the angels. The broader point is to get caught up on the one who's seated on the throne. Uh, he has a robe, which is symbolizing royalty, right? As a king, ro- royalty. It talks about the train, or, or the word there is the hem of his garment fills the temple. So just the edge of his garment fills the entire temple and... You know, it's kind of symbolizing, I believe, people have a lot of opinions, but I think the, the, the most basic sense of it is that all of the temple is his. Even the hem of his garment fills the whole place. It belongs to him. The uh, term there, it says temple, and it also says house. You see that? It also says house. Temple in verse 1, house in verse 4. Um, it's an uncommon word for temple that's being used here. But what it basically means is it's a word that can mean either a house of God or a home of the king. It can kind of go either way, a house of God or a home of the king. Guess what? We have both. That's why that word, I believe, is used. We have both going on. This is a place where God is worshipped, even by angels, as God. And also, it's the throne room, the house of the king at the same time. It says he's high and lifted up. The idea here is that though his glory fills all creation, he's not part of creation. He is above creation. He's not equal to it. He's not like Uzziah who was king but was also human. He is king, but he's apart from creation. Uh, God's rule. So what does that mean? It means, well, number one, God's rule is not challenged by anything in creation because he's above it. It means that God's rule is not governed by any of the decisions made by his creation. So I don't care what you want to make God like. God's not governed by you or me or anybody else. God's rule is never ending. Never ending because his throne sits lifted above. It's above creation. Creation is what suffers from uh, decay and death and war and all those things. That he's above, his throne is above that. So his throne is everlasting it's never ending god's rule is also guarded not that he needs it but it's guarded by the most rare of angels who are worshiping him in such a way that they cover their eyes and their feet though they are holy angels in the presence of god they still exercise extreme humility extreme humility that's what the covering of the feet symbolizes and the whole earth, it says, is full of his glory. You may feel like that's not true because you may know places where that's certainly not the case. Well, you're understanding it wrong. What it means is there, the, the word glory is heaviness. It, kind of the idea here is that there's no place on earth where his glory is not. His presence, his heaviness is everywhere. His fingerprint is everywhere. In all things, any place you can see it. And even when there are no... People to praise him, there are angels who will. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 3, 9 that he could create rocks to do it if he needed to. So 
But Ezekiel and John, they both describe seeing the throne as well. Let me just show you some. I'm not going to read. You can go back and read these in detail, but I'll just skim through and show you. In Ezekiel 1, uh, years after Isaiah, he says, uh, verse 24, I heard the sound of the wings. Remember, he's seeing the same kind of throne moment. I heard the sound of their wings. They sound like the sound of many waters, like the sound of an army, talking about these angels that are flying there. Verse 26, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. In other words, he's saying likeness because he's trying to put his brain around what he's actually seeing. And though it looks like it, it's also impossible to get your brain around. Verse 27, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, this person on the throne, as it were a gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. So the idea is like the, I think of that, if you look at a chrome bumper or something and the sun hits it. And you can't, it like hurts your eyes to look at. And that's the idea of what, from the waist up, that's all he can see is almost this like reflecting light off metal. And coming down from his waist is like fire, looking at fire. You take the picture. Yet he also looked like a person. Goes on and he says, verse 28, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, rainbow, obviously, so was the appearance of the brightness around. So it appears as a rainbow all around him. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. You know what I'm saying? Revelation, all the way to the end of the, the Bible, Revelation chapter 4, John has a similar experience where he sees the throne. You can read this in your own time. Revelation 4 verse 2, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder goes on and he says, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. I'm not breaking all this down, but verse 8, he goes on, he says, each of them had six wings. Sound familiar? <coughs> Excuse me, I hate to cough in the mic. Sorry. <coughs> each had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Same characters. Holy, holy holy simply put it's a picture of the trinity each god is holy three times um so how would you respond to this encounter if it was you if you're isaiah and you're in this moment how do you respond put yourself there what would be the first thing on your mind when you start to see this happen well i can tell you what's on his mind Realize that God is present and then recognize and repent. Recognize yourself a sinner and repent. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. There you go. My eyes have seen, just like the same thread we've been talking about. I saw him with my own eyes. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin 
atoned for, that is awesome. Many times we think about prophets uh, always having bad news, and they, they come with this repent, woe to you, oh, woe to you. Uh, but notice Isaiah's first woe here is to himself. Woe is me. And his first act here is personal repentance. I am unclean. And notice what causes that conviction. It's just being in God's presence. I think immediately about Peter when he's in the boat in Luke chapter 5 verse 8 and God and Jesus does this insane miracle with the fish and Peter saw it. It says he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, that's the truest test of faith. You want, how do you know if somebody's faith is genuine? How do you know if they're, they're really a believer? You know, these kind of things. It's not all the good deeds they do because plenty of people do good deeds. It is conviction. It's conviction. I'm not going to go all into it now, but think of some sins out there, sinful lifestyles and otherwise, that are being embraced in every way, even by the church in some some instances, where we're justifying it because of words like love or different things like that. We're justifying it because of words like choice and things like that, when there should be, true faith should bring conviction. Can you step into the presence of God's throne in that condition and not be bothered? Don't see it happening. Isaiah recognizes that unlike these angels who are shouting praises of holy, holy, that are shaking the floor, he's a sinner and his mouth can't do that because out of his mouth comes sin. And he's supposed to be a prophet. Jesus said in Matthew fifteen eighteen, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and that's what defiles a person, the heart. He's recognizing that he has that problem. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you want to praise the Lord? Like you have a moment where you really just, you want to, but you're ashamed of something. I don't know. You, you want it. You want to praise God, but you feel like you're ashamed. Or you want to tell somebody about Jesus, but you feel like, man, yeah, but this is going on in my life. And Satan's real good about showing up in those times, getting right in your ear and going, you know, yeah, you call yourself a Christian, but look at blank. How are you going to tell them about it? And there's an important aspect to repentance, even if you are a believer, a continued act of repenting in the presence of God. Isaiah says he is unclean and dwells among unclean people. He's talking about Israel. But notice the response from God. So in the, in the regular temple service, as I said, you have this, this coal that comes from the altar of sacrifice outside where this animal has, has been killed for the sacrifice of the people's sins. And then they carry, the priests would carry that in, uh, to the altar of incense. And then the incense would symbolically, as it was lit, carry the prayers of repentance of God's people. And it was lit by the sacrifice outside for their sins. So Isaiah now, he's, he's here, he's praying to God because he's talking to God. And even in this moment, woe is me, even though he's saying it out outright, his prayer. Woe is me, and he's talking to God. And you have the prayers of the people, in essence, because the house is filled with smoke and filling, filling more with smoke. That's already gone on. So when the angel comes in with the censer, or the, or excuse me, when the angel comes in with the coal, it's not coming to light the incense now. It's already That's already going on. He's coming to apply it to Isaiah. 
He's coming to apply that to Isaiah. When we confess sin, in a very similar way, we, we go through the same process. Through prayer to God, we say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. We confess to God, and that's made possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. Because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on that cross that's been applied to us, applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Because of that, we are able to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. And we're made clean. How's your prayer life? Do you feel the weight of being unclean? Listen to me. Do you feel the weight of being unclean? Even if you're a believer, I'm not talking about being lost here. I'm just talking about feeling separated from God or feeling unclean. That's the best word I can think of. Do you consider that his blood is what made you clean in the first place? It's his blood that made that possible. Does that burn? Does it burn to think that that cross is for you? Does it burn when you hear him on that cross say, forgive them for they know not what they do? Does that burn? Would it change if you found yourself at the actual throne of God like this? Notice the burning coal here doesn't purify his mouth. It removes his sin and his guilt. His mouth is where his gift is supposed to come from. But either way, the mouth just translates the sin that's in your heart. So what's happening here is rather than just cleaning his mouth, it's purifying his heart. It's removing his sin and his guilt. It should tell you that sin is a, a condition. It's not an event. Sin is not something you did once. Sin is something that you are in a state of. He said things like, I am lost, conditionally lost. I am a man of Unclean lips. My lifestyle is this was who I am. So lifestyle is not an event, but now he is free. He's free because of his repentance here. Free of being a sinner. Look at Isaiah 6 verse 8. So you have realized that, that God is present, recognize and repent of sin, and then respond, man, hey, send me. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Us being a wild word, but there's a picture of the Trinity there. You can go back and look at Genesis 1.26, let us make man, or 11.7, let us go down. Uh, a lot of talk about that, but that's where I'm going to park that one. Then I said, here I am, send me. So obviously Isaiah is responding, send me, Lord, as a result of this forgiveness and whatever. But there's also a bigger picture here of Christ. John 3.16, you all know it, for God so loved the world that he what? gave or sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Philippians 2, 5, Paul describes how he was sent. It says, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Basically means he was God, but he didn't cling to it. Even though he was God and he knew he was God, he didn't cling to that, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Um, John 20, verse 21, Jesus tells, tells his disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Here I am, Lord, send me. Israel will be facing some terrible days in the near future. Um, that was... Certain. They were already in hard times, but it was going to get much worse. And though the news that Isaiah was going to bring was not good news in a lot of ways, one thing was certain. 
Okay? One thing was certain. Whether it was visible or not visible, God's throne was and is in place. Is in place. He is, was then, and is now seated on it. His presence fills his entire temple, and there is no place on earth where his glory does not exist, where he is not worshipped. Even even the places where it appears he's not worshipped, at the least there's angels that do it. His glory fills the earth. And because of Isaiah's repentance here, he has the privilege now of being sent by God to speak for God and to proclaim God's kingdom. Think about the privilege of that. How about you? How about you? Do you recognize that you have been given that privilege? If you're a believer, if you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord, you have that. How's your prayer life? Do you look for his presence when you pray? Do you look? Are you repenting? Are you humble? And is your answer to his forgiveness, here I am, send me. Daily. Not a one-time thing and then wait for him to tell you what part of the map you're going to. Every day can you get up and say, Lord, forgive me. Here I am. Send me. Every day. Might be across the street. It might be to the break room. It might be to a phone call, a Zoom call, something like that. It, It could be to Japan or China or who knows where. I don't know. But every day, here I am. Send me. Think about that the next time you talk about going before the throne with a prayer request. We use that phrase. Think about that next time. Think about this the next time you say, I'm going to take it before the throne. Uh, but maybe, listen, maybe you haven't ever really prayed before. Or maybe you've tried it or you've done it or whatever, but uh, you're not sure what you really believe when you do pray. Um, do you feel like you're being heard? And this is going to sting a little, but I'm being honest. Maybe you need to take a step back and ask why you believe God should be listening anyway. What makes you think that he should be listening to you? I can tell you your prayers are only accepted based on the sacrifices of a broken heart, a repentant heart over sin. That's where it starts. You can't get, he's not hearing them apart from that. And the only sacrifice that has the power to change your heart and atone for your sin, the only sacrifice that has that power was made by Jesus Christ. That's what the cross is about. That's what the cross is about. He died innocently for your sin. And when you confess him by faith and surrender your life to him, repenting and saying, Lord, I am a sinner. I'm a man who is unclean. He takes the blood of his son, he applies it to your life, and your sin is atoned for. Your guilt is removed. I want you to do that today. Please tell him today. Make that confession today. Let me pray for you. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for my brothers and sisters today, Lord. I pray you help us be aware of you um, even when uh, we don't see you, even when we're, we're not visibly aware of your presence. Help us to know spiritually that you're right there. Lord, I pray for those that may be hearing or seeing you for the first time, God, and hearing this and thinking, man, I want, I need that salvation. I, I need to be free from guilt. I need to be free uh, from sin. Lord, hear their prayers. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill their heart and that you would guide them and lead them to a great 
church, to a great body of believers that can help them grow closer to you and follow you. If that's here, even better. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.